trigger warning, rape, an Israeli officer raped Palestinian women in exchange for work permits. Rape and sexual assault and sexual violence are embedded into the structures of the settler colony. It's often used as a tactic against Palestinian prisoners, be they men, women, or children. And it goes back to the very founding of the state of Israel. During the Nakba, there were numerous reports of systemic rape being used by the Zionist gangs that were expelling Palestinians from their cities, from their villages. It was used as a tactic to threaten, to intimidate, and it continues until today to be used as a weapon by the colonizer towards the colonizer. God knows what is happening, you know, behind closed doors that is not being reported on. Yeah, and now you're starting to see why somebody would want to dig their freedom underground with a spoon. Hey y'all, so every now and then we have an episode where we feel like we need to give you a trigger warning, and this is one of those episodes. There's going to be a lot of talk about rape, a lot of talk about power and coercion, and if you're looking for a lighter episode, we just did a beautiful episode with Judy Kala about cooking and stuff like that, so check that out if you're looking for a lighter episode, but this one is going to be very dark and very depressing and we're sorry in advance but it needs to be talked about and with that hello and welcome to episode 31 of the palestine pod the weekly podcast where we break down the latest headlines dealing with palestine from all over the world and bring you stories commentary and interviews with the aim of supporting the palestinian struggle for justice and equal rights I'm one of your hosts, Lara E. You might know me from Instagram as at Gazan Girl, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mikey B. What's up, y'all? Mikey B on TikTok, Michael Scherzer on Instagram. And you can call me Mikey Intifada if you manage to find time to take away from pulling mothers off of her son's grave to build a theme park. Yeah, that's not one of their finer moments. But it sure is on brand. Yes. Before we get into today's episode, please like, comment, and subscribe if you hang out with us on YouTube. If you're listening on a podcast app, subscribe and leave a review. As always, you can find our full episodes and sources on palestinepod.com. And if you want to get involved in the conversation, reach out to us at palestinepod at gmail.com and follow us on Instagram at the palestinepod. We're also going strong on Patreon, so if you love the Palestine Pod and want to support this project, join our Patreon where you get early access to the Palestine Pod episodes every week, an additional one to two podcasts per week, including our latest project called the Patreon Pod, a little more laid back, a little more Palestine politics, pop culture. We also have our monthly Zoom happy hours with Michael and myself, all available for our Patreon subscribers. Really exciting stuff. So head on over to patreon.com slash Palestine pod to learn more. So the first story we're going to cover today was published on October 22nd, 2021 by the Middle East Monitor. And it describes how an Israeli officer raped Palestinian women in exchange for work permits. The rape occurred in 2013 and 2014. Officer's identity is still withheld. He was secretly convicted by an Israeli court in 2017, and most of the details of the investigation have not come to light. The army major threatened that he would revoke the Palestinian woman's permit to work in Israel if she reported the rape. 
The court also convicted him of another count of rape, which involved threats. The judges said in their ruling, he returned her permit, which he had taken earlier, told her it was valid and made it clear to her that she must continue to come and see him. She did not return. The abuse continued. The officer would sometimes call M, is the person asked to be described as M, with requests of a sexual nature and making various sexual advances, the court said. He also asked her to bring her daughter to him. According to the court verdict, the Palestinian woman had expressed through her behavior that she did not consent to having sexual contact with him, and the inequality and in power between them and her dependence on the officer should be seen as coercion. Furthermore, he was aware that she had not consented, ruled the judges. The officer was convicted on two counts of rape as well as receiving bribes from a second Palestinian woman identified only as F. The verdict said he had sexually exploited her three times in return for approving permits. He also ignored the issue of consent in this case, ruled the appeals court. In March, the officer appealed his sentence. The court upheld his 11-year sentence but overturned the lower court's decision to discharge him from the army, instead demoting him from a major to a private. Yeah, I was just looking. This story was reported by the Jerusalem Post as well. And it's by no means unique. Rape and sexual assault and sexual violence in general are embedded into the structures of the settler colony. It's often used as a tactic against Palestinian prisoners, be they men, women, or children. And it's certainly something that takes place at at different times, I mean, whether, you know, it's at a checkpoint or if, if soldiers come to your house for a raid, whatever it may be, any encounter with an Israeli soldier, there is this possibility for sexual violence to take place. And as Palestinians living under occupation, there isn't really any recourse to this because they're subject to military law while the Israeli soldiers who are there on their land occupying it almost never face any sort of consequences for the crimes that they commit while on the job. So this is something that we see a lot. And it goes back actually to the very founding of the state of Israel itself. I mean, during the Nakba, there were numerous reports of systemic rape being used by the Zionist gangs that were expelling Palestinians from their cities, from their villages. It was used as a tactic to threaten, to intimidate, to drive Palestinians out. There were reports of it at the Deir Yassin massacre. There were reports of rapes taking place at the massacre in Safsaf on October 29th, 1948, after the Zionists captured the Palestinian village of Safsaf, which is in the Galilee. And we're talking about really brutal crimes, rapes and murders of you know, girls as young as 14 taking place in this particular instance. And this is something that we see over and over again, and it continues until today to be used as a weapon by the colonizer towards the colonized population. Yeah. I remember you talking about Ben-Gurion's notes, right? Where he was waxing poetic about the idea of raping Palestinian women. So reports detail that Ben-Gurion's diaries included details about 
the Israeli soldiers killing and raping of Palestinian women, and then the Egyptian army's response in 1950. So on April 2nd, 1950, Ben-Gurion wrote that the situation in the Negev desert was, quote, not good. He also said, quote, they once again arrested our soldiers who killed and raped two Arab girls. In response, the Egyptians planted a landmine, ambushed and killed five people, three soldiers and two civilians. So according to an article that was published in Jadalia. David Ben-Gurion, like other Zionist leaders, openly discussed the rape and sexual torture of Palestinian women in his diaries in 1948 and also in 1950, like we saw with that example that we just provided. At the same time, he advocated the killing of Palestinian women and children, constructing them as a threat to the Jewish settlement project. He awarded a prize to every Jewish mother on her 10th child, Ben-Gurion ensured that the Jewish agency, not the state, administered such pronatal incentives in order to guarantee the exclusion of Palestinians. Fetishization of fertility has made Palestinians, especially women, targets of nationalist rhetoric that deeply politicizes their reproduction. Yeah, so he advocated for rape. No surprise there. I mean, it's not like he would be like, we got to murder people, steal all their land, but I draw the line at rape. I draw the line at rape, right? That just goes to show you that it runs deep. It's been ingrained in their system forever. And it continues to this day because they have an Israeli military chief rabbi who in 2016 said that in the interests of maintaining a warrior's morale, and fighting fitness during armed conflict, it was permitted to, quote, satisfy the evil inclination by lying with attractive Gentile women against their will. Direct quote from the Israeli military chief rabbi, 2016. So Adamir, one of the organizations that has been classified by Israel in the last couple of weeks as a quote-unquote terrorist organization, essentially the Palestinian civil society organization that works on the issue of political prisoners has written about sexual violence that takes place against Palestinians who are held as political prisoners by Israel. And they explain that Palestinian women prisoners are not only subject to rape in the most extreme sense, but also forms of psychological torture and ill treatment throughout the process of their arrest and detention. And this can include forms of sexual violence, such as beatings, insults, threats. A lot of the times they'll make threats of rape to those women, either to themselves or about their families. So the soldiers will threaten to rape members of their families. And this takes place while they're being interrogated many times without a lawyer as a means to coerce them into confessions. So this sexual harassment of Palestinian prisoners is very common and something that Adamir has reported on. Obviously, these occurrences of sexual assault are a sensitive issue for Palestinians. It's really difficult for people who have been victim of these types of assaults to find resources and to heal after these attacks. It's obviously a sensitive issue with Palestinian culture being a more traditional culture. So it creates an incredible amount of stress and psychological warfare for these individuals who are subject to this type of of really perverse treatment. 
And the Zionists know that. The Zionists know the culture of Palestinians, and they know that once they've raped a woman, that she will be shamed. And it's not even like she should be shamed. Nobody should feel responsible for being raped, right? Nobody at all should feel responsible for being violated. And I'm just like, I, I often think about what Lila June said about how some Native women had to have sex in order to get resources, right? Like it's not, it's, it was rape. They had, they, were, they had to accept rape in order to get resources like water. And these women are trying to live. They're doing their best to live and they're being victimized by a power dynamic. They're being victimized by disgusting male heteropatriarchy. They are being taken advantage of and they have virtually no recourse. And it's just, uh, it's very overwhelming. Yeah, I mean, obviously agree. I mean, there, there have been reports of Israeli soldiers sort of bragging about their rapes of Palestinian women. There was the incident of one of the settlements, Or Yehuda, hanging up a banner in support of Israeli soldiers that suggest the rape of Palestinian women. And so this is something that that is normalized. I mean, I think it's part of the dehumanization of Palestinians. If yes. they're not human, you can do whatever you want with them. And that's something that can be supported at all levels of society, whether it's on the individual level or whether it's on the systemic level, whereby the actual structures of the state will support those who carry out these crimes. And, you know, I mean, we see, we see things like, I mean, even when we see clips of, you know, for example, occupied Jerusalem and Israeli soldiers ripping hijabs off of Palestinian women, whether they be younger or older, that's a form of sexual violence because it's, it's, it's relying on the same power dynamics and this notion of uncovering as a means to humiliate and to subjugate that individual in that moment. These are things that are just part and parcel of Israel's colonial project. You know, I mean, men face this too, like Palestinian men, political prisoners are always are often threatened with sexual violence. And this is something that's really degrading and 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 offensive and twisted and and can affect the men in our community psychologically as well, subject to that type of treatment while they're being held. And, and all of it is used as a tactic. I mean, sometimes you get the impression that they're doing it for fun. Other times you get the impression that they're using it as a tactic to try to extract a confession for a crime that was never committed. But in any event, they use it. And, and that's that's the issue here. So I think we should just, you know, obviously be aware that when we speak about political prisoners, when we speak about, you know, what Palestinians on the ground have to deal with, this is just another layer of violence that exists in everyday life, whether you're a person going about your business, trying to live your life 
and you know you're not political at all or you're somebody who's involved in the resistance and these are the risks that you have to deal with just simply being Palestinian on your land it also affects Palestinians in exile right when you try and come back like yourself you were strip searched that is sexual harassment that is oh, for sure. that is sexual violence like for sure. you were in a room with men who had guns and they were like get naked like so to be fair to be fair and i don't know we can cut this if we need to i was strip searched by a woman i don't know if that's Nonetheless, better <laughs> you were strip searched you, stri- you were strip searched against your will right yeah of course i totally did not so, want to be strip searched that's sexual violence yeah i was lucky that it was a woman right i mean it would have been much I mean, worse yes that's true i don't think we should give them the benefit of the doubt though right because all that means is that they've like acquired a new layer yeah. of oppression that incorporates women yeah great oh girl boss we love we love a girl boss assisting in sexual assault yeah exactly 2020 article entitled sexual violence as a war weapon in conflict zones palestinian women's experience visiting loved ones in prisons and jails reports on palestinian women's experiences with sexual violence by prison personnel as they visit their detained loved ones so not only is it being used on the prisoners but it's also being used on their family members if they're even allowed to go visit them you're seeing that sexual violence is being used against them the study basically finds after interviewing 20 participants that 19 of the 20 participants stated that they experienced some sort of unwanted verbal and nonverbal sexual comments or gestures, forced nudity, or forced touching by prison personnel. Women talked about how the experiences have harmed them as well as the strategies that they use to overcome their experiences. And the findings in the article are contextualized within the scope of and the framework of international law and describe the implications of sexual violence by the colonizer within a culture that links modesty with religious beliefs and honor. So this is similar to what we were talking about just a moment ago. And I just want to say, you know, when we're talking about people who claim to be ignorant, claim to not know what's going on, and they're like, oh, both sides, you never hear about Palestinians gang raping Israelis. Like, never. I've never heard of it. Never heard of Palestinians mass raping Israeli. I just, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. I don't, it's never come up. No, I don't think you're wrong. Yeah. I'm not saying there aren't Palestinians who've raped. Sure, there are. I mean, I think the point you're making is that it's being used on a mass scale by a state structure to subject and subordinate and to oppress the population that they are controlling and whose lives they dominate and and that's really the point here it's 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 not a micro issue it's not an it's not happening on this individual level it's happening within the context of the settler colony within the context of the apartheid system and as we know the occupation has become a safe haven for pedophiles and other criminals related to rape and things of that nature here's a post from CBS news from February 2020, talking about how Jewish American pedophiles hide from justice in Israel. Accused of assaulting a nine-year-old girl in Oregon in 2000, 
Jimmy Julius Caro fled Oregon to Israel before authorities in the U.S. could apprehend him or figure out where he went. Two years after he fled the U.S., Caro was convicted by an Israeli court of child molestation in a separate case. He served time and he was released. Now, another alleged Israeli victim has come forward saying he began abusing her when she was five years old and continued for years. Caro has successfully evaded authorities by moving between communities in Israel for almost two decades, and he is not alone. CBS News investigation has found that many accused American pedophiles flee to Israel, and bringing them to justice can be difficult. Jewish Community Watch JWC, an American organization that tracks accused pedophiles, has been trying for years to find Caro and bring him to justice. JCW says Caro and other wanted men and women have been able to exploit a right known as, quote, the law of return, which we've covered, I would say, ad nauseum on this show. Since the small organization started tracking accused pedophiles in 2014, it says more than 60 have fled from the U.S. to Israel. Given its limited resources to identify these individuals, JCW says the number is actually likely much larger. The same thing that is going on in the Catholic Church right now around the world, the exact same thing is happening in our community. JCW's founder, Meyer Seewald, said to CBS, the cover-ups are the same, the stigma, the shame. Everyone goes and surrounds this individual and supports him because they can't believe a person can do such a crime. They take the abuser's side and the abuse continues, Seewald says. They put him in another community. A few years later, he's done the same thing, and we hear more allegations that the person is abusing children. Victims don't want to come forward when they hear that. The extradition treaty between the U.S. and Israel sets out that Israel will not allow extradition of its own citizens to the U.S., so if you're Jewish and you commit a crime and you have an Israeli passport, you can run away to Israel and the state will not extradite you back to the U.S. to be prosecuted for the crime that you committed there. And many people have. This is an article from 2016 in the Times of Israel that says diaspora pedophiles increasingly use Israel as a, quote, haven, activist charge. Sex offenders flee their home countries for the, quote, Jewish state grassroots efforts to raise awareness of their presence has led to a slander lawsuit. Yeah, I mean, they're going to just file a lawsuit and be like, you're slandering me. And you're like, hey, I will absolutely see you in American court. You know what I'm saying? Show up. Come back. Come back and sue me here. Face those sex trafficking charges first. You know what I'm saying? Talk to me then. Even the United States acknowledges that Israel is failing to do the minimum to fight human trafficking. And we know that if the United States says anything negative about Israel, it's got to be because it's serious, right? They don't just come out and make claims or downgrade their status, you know, for no reason. The United States State Department report downgraded Israel to its second tier, ranking it for the first time in a decade. It rebuked Israel's efforts to deal with human trafficking, stating that the country, quote, does not fully meet the minimum standards for the elimination of trafficking. And the United States you know, one of the premier human traffickers in the world. So when you're getting that kind of notoriety, it's like getting the acknowledgement of the best. You're like Michael Jordan telling you nice shot. <laughs> okay. Am I allowed to laugh at that? 
Yeah, it's meant to be a joke. I'm trying to do something. You know, like, okay. I don't know. Fuck. I'm <laughs> I know. It's it's like, hey, uh, listeners, like- I'm so sorry. It's not going to be a super funny episode, but, like, I'm going to try my best. Yeah. I mean, let's see here. According to the State Department, how many people were trafficked in the U.S. last year? Not even just in the United States. The United States government has funded trafficking through its contractors like DynCorp. DynCorp was implicated in a large-scale human trafficking ring. 2016, the United States State Department estimated that 57,700 people were trafficked into the country. 50% of those were female. 50% of yes. them were females trafficked for sexual exploitation. Yeah, the, the, the tricky part is trying to find statistics on that stuff. I mean, when you look at the NGOs that are working on these issues, they all will say, okay, we have estimates of the number of women and children that are forced into sexual slavery or are trafficked in the US every year, but the total number varies widely because it's very difficult to research. Yeah, it's also not really the type of thing people are like keen to report on because this is the type of stuff people go missing over, right? Yeah. This this is the type of stuff where journalists end up in a suitcase. Yeah. So anyways, I hope y'all enjoyed this episode of (laughs) Palestine Pod. Are Um, we done? No, No, I'm just kidding. We got to keep going. There's a connection between the Israeli Mossad and human trafficking as well, according to a recent book about Jeffrey Epstein. The deceased American financier and convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein and his girlfriend Ghislaine Maxwell were Israeli spies who used underage girls to blackmail politicians into giving information to Israel, according to their alleged Mossad handler. The couple reportedly ran a, quote, honey trap operation in which they provided young girls to prominent politicians from around the world for rape and then use the incidents to blackmail them in order to attain information for Israeli intelligence. The claims are being made by the alleged former Israeli spy, Ari Ben Manash, in a book, Epstein, Dead Men Tell No Tales, in which he said that he was the handler of Ghislaine's father, Robert Maxwell, who was also an Israeli espionage agent and was the one who introduced his daughter and Epstein to Mossad. So the book is out. It came out in 2019. It's got 4.5 stars, 576 ratings on Amazon. So, Yeah, the handler, Ben Menashe, himself was an Iran-born Israeli businessman who says he worked for Mossad from 1977 to 1987, a mysterious figure who was arrested in 1989 in the U.S. on charges of arms dealing. He was acquitted in 1990. However, only after a jury accepted that he was acting on behalf of the Israeli state. Israel then denied that Menashe has any links to its intelligence services and attempted to distance itself from him, despite the fact that other news reports both in the U.S. and Israel, confirmed he was acting on the occupation's behalf. This would only add to the occupation's already revealed track record of manipulating Western nations' political systems, as was seen in revelations of the Israeli lobby's attempts to, quote, take down British and U.S. politicians revealed in the past few years. And again, it's something that we can draw a parallel with. Jewish women were raped in concentration camps. Jewish women were raped in order to get access to resources. 
Jewish women were raped in order to just go about living their daily life under Nazi occupation. And they didn't care because they didn't view Jews as humans. Just like the Israelis do not view Palestinians as humans. It's Yeshayahu Leibowitz, Judeo-Nazism, the philosophy that allows entire populations to be dehumanized, degraded, and disrespected. It's what allows you to pull a grieving mother off of her son's grave so that you can desecrate the body of a dead person in order to build a theme park. Like, what are we even talking about, bro? You know what I'm saying? Like, why, why are we even talking about digging up dead bodies in order to build a roller coaster? It's truly insane. Yeah, because so much of the Zionist narrative relies on the the central lie that we don't exist, and and when you dig up the dead, you you target proof of our existence on this land. You know, if we have gravestones that are there that show us there hundreds and hundreds of years, that's a problem for Zionism. And it's just slowly eating away at our society, our civilization, our community, Every, you know, with every house demolition, with every olive tree uprooted, with every gravestone that is desecrated and dug up. I'm reading some reports of Palestinian women who were abused in Israeli jails on the Middle East Eye. And there's an article from 2018 where a Palestinian woman recalls the physical intimidation and sexual harassment that was used by Israeli interrogators on her when she was arrested in the 70s. And again, this just confirms that these techniques have been used since the inception of the state in order to create the state. And then, you know, every decade, every year thereafter, in addition to the physical beatings and really heinous conditions, inadequate medical care, inadequate food, and even water. A Palestinian woman leader who was a member of the Fatah Revolutionary Council describes the memory of Israeli interrogators brushing their hands across her legs to sexually intimidate her. She says they would sit in a way to be very close to us, to touch our bodies. I remember it was terrible for me at that age. She's She was 54 when she's recounting this for the purposes of the article, but she was only a teenager when these events took place. She says that since the age of 14, she has been arrested by Israeli forces four times for her involvement with Fatah and taking part in protests against the Israeli occupation. And when she was only 18, she was sentenced to three years in prison. She speaks about how the torture and degrading treatment start from the first moment of the arrest. She gives examples of women who wear the hijab, who would often get into heated arguments with the soldiers to let them put their headscarves on before being detained from their homes. So that's one thing that the soldiers would try to do is to try to drag the women out of their homes as they're arresting them without their hijab on. And the women are simply asking for the right to have their hijab on when they're being dragged out of their homes and arrested and kidnapped by their colonizer. 
Right. Um, Let's break that down. They're not even resisting arrest. They're simply saying, allow me to continue my the traditions of my religion in the Holy Land, right? While you are violating my basic human rights. Not even going pro, not even fighting the, the violation of the basic human rights, just want to be able to practice my religion in the home of all Abrahamic religions. Doesn't seem unreasonable. No. The director of Adamir Sahar Francis was speaking about this issue and was quoted as saying that the interrogator will shout in their faces, try to intimidate them with some sexual words and insults, and start teasing them, asking them if they're married and what their husbands are doing while they're being imprisoned. While Israeli forces are mandated to have a female officer present during the interrogation of women, prisoners that were interviewed said that these officers did little to ensure their safety and actually served as a cover for the verbal and physical abuse that took place during these interrogations. A prominent lawyer by the name of Shireen says that sometimes the interrogator would talk to us in a sexual way and they would use the female soldier to say that we are lying when we say that they beat us, this is a lawyer who has spent five years in prison, including four years for transferring money to Palestinian prisoners. That happens in the United States as well, where the police officers will use female detectives to squash rape cases. I know someone personally who had her case destroyed by a female detective because that's her job. Her job is to protect the rapist, protect the station, protect the patriarchy, basically. M. Safin, the leader of the Union of Palestinian Women's Committee, said that Israeli soldiers mostly target younger women and sexually harass them during long journeys when they're being picked up and they go back and forth from the Israeli courts. A lot of times they're going to spend hours in transit. And a lot of times the sexual harassment takes place during these journeys. There are ample videos as well of Israeli occupation soldiers assessing underage girls, underage Palestinian girls at checkpoints, yeah. right? We'll pu- I'll put in a video, just, just one. But there are, I'm sure, ample videos. There's another video that I saw of an older woman describing the treatment that she was subjected to as well, where she was strip searched, stripped naked, tied up, and all of this happened in front of her father. They did that deliberately because they know about the relationship 
between daughter and father in Palestinian culture, right? It's an exploitation of the powerlessness and the power dynamic that exists. It is so disgusting and so vile that it's often hard to talk about. Like I, I'm having trouble talking about it right now. I'm sorry that I am making you talk about this right now. And it's like, it, it blows my mind that this doesn't really come up in the conversation when we're talking about the occupation because they're doing so much other heinous shit. Sometimes we just don't bring this up, but this needs to be at the forefront of conversation when we're talking about what they do on a daily basis. They violate people and they do it because they know that it creates an atmosphere of self-shame, of community shame. They are exploiting a tactic. Nobody should feel shame because they were raped. The people who should be ashamed are the rapists. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the Middle East Eye article that I'm, that I'm looking at echoes a lot of those same feelings. They, they say that, so, you know, while some Palestinian women have spoken up about being raped in Israeli custody, for many, it's a difficult topic to address because of these social taboos. And what's been really tricky in the preparation of this episode is that authoritative data on the prevalence of sexual assault on Palestinians in Israeli prisons is not really available. But there was a 2016 report by the Public Committee Against Torture in Israel, which is an Israeli human rights organization, which in and of itself is admitting that some 4% of male Palestinians have been subject to some form of sexual torture. We should acknowledge that that is 4% that admitted it. Right. right? This particular study was based on the Public Committee Against Torture in Israel database from 2005 to 2012 containing 60 cases. So out of those 60 cases, 4% of the files included testimonies of alleged sexual torture or ill treatment. And the findings showed that the sexual ill treatment is systemic with 36 reports of verbal sexual harassment, either directed towards Palestinian men and boys or towards family members and 35 reports of forced nudity. There are six testimonies of Israeli officials involved in physical sexual assault of arrested or imprisoned Palestinian men, physical assault, basically pressing and or kicking the genitals. Um, in one instance, there was a simulated rape. And then in another instance, there was an actual rape by means of a blunt object. The, the problem is, is like, we know that this is happening on such a wider scale. But this article is like giving us just a glimpse of God knows what is happening, you know, behind closed doors that is not being reported on. It just gives us the beginning of an illustration of the various types of sexual torture and ill treatment that Palestinian boys and men are experiencing, you know, behind closed doors. Also keeping in mind that they are the majority of the Palestinian political prisoners that are being held by Israel. Yeah. And now you're starting to see why somebody would want to dig their freedom underground with a spoon. Yeah. I just want to add that the individual that we spoke about from the Middle East Eye article, member of the Fatah Revolutionary Council, who spent time in Israeli prison for several years in the 70s, also recalled that you know the effects of imprisonment continue long after release. She said that Basically, decades later, she experiences shortness of breath and enclosed spaces, feels claustrophobic even in the shower. 
she said that some of the women that she knows who had been raped in Israeli custody in the early 1970s still struggled to talk about their experiences. And this reminds me of the case of Rasmi Auda, who was a longstanding member of the Palestinian community in Chicago and who was eventually deported due to allegedly having lied on her citizenship application. There was like a huge process and a very big campaign to keep Rasmi Auda in the U.S., but she was eventually forced to leave Chicago, even though she had helped build a very politically active Palestinian community for 23 years. Part of her story was that she had been sexually assaulted while she was in Israeli custody. She had maintained that she was tortured and sexually abused for over 25 days before agreeing to sign a false confession to a crime. And like virtually all Palestinians, she was tried in Israeli military court, she was convicted, and then at age 21, she was sentenced to life in prison. She eventually spent 10 years behind bars before she was released as a result of a prisoner exchange with about 75 other Palestinians. Ended up testifying about being tortured to a UN committee, being one of the first Palestinian women to publicly testify about the use of sexual torture in Israeli custody. And what ended up happening was when she came to the US and filled out all her citizenship paperwork, there was a question about, have you ever been convicted of a crime? And she had checked no. And that ended up coming to light years later and was the reason for which her citizenship was revoked subsequently. And eventually she ended up being deported. But this just shows you, I mean, so many things that Palestinian women are being sexually assaulted in Israeli custody, that women like Rasmi Aouda were coerced into confessing to crimes that they didn't commit via the use of sexual torture, that psychologically this will affect you for decades and decades later, that she lost 10 years of her life before being released, and then eventually lived a very positive life as an active member of the Chicago Palestinian community. That whole experience came out and was able to retroactively change things for her. And she ended up being, now she's living in Jordan, but she was she was such an amazing member of the, the Palestinian community in Chicago. So I want to just give her a little bit of space because I didn't know her very well, but I definitely would see her at events and leading protests and working with children. And she was she was amazing. Yeah. And it's common for the Israeli police, the Israeli occupation, to force Palestinian women to withdraw their complaints about being raped. Here's an example about a Palestinian rape victim who was forced to withdraw her complaint after police in the West Bank threatened her and treated her as the suspect. Three years later, her assailant raped another woman. And an Israeli court has harshly criticized detectives from the police district covering the West Bank. In September, he was convicted of both rapes, and prosecutors have asked that he be sentenced to 25 to 30 years in prison. No disciplinary or other measures have been taken against the detectives. This is a Haaretz article from October 31st. And then there's another article from the Jerusalem Post entitled Gang Rapes in Israel a spike in cases or business as usual from March 15th, 2021. 
recent reports of multiple gang rapes of minors, the youngest of whom was 10 years old, have brought public attention to gang sexual assault in Israel, where the rate of violent sexual offenses is approximately 10% higher than the average for OECD countries. Mm. Hey, only democracy in the Middle East, you know what I mean? According to the Association of Rape Crisis Centers in Israel, which cited information published by Israel's public security ministry. So this, knew is, rape this was, is not necessarily rape of Palestinian girls or no, women. This is, this, is this, is, this is actually rape of Israelis in yeah. Israeli society. This is a yeah. sickness that is endemic inside Israeli society. Yeah. Increased exposure to violence and porn combined with a lack of education and a failure to enforce Israel's laws against sexual violence are two of the main factors behind Israel's epidemic of sexual violence, according to ARCCI CEO Orit Sulit Sanu. Three suspects were arrested in March for allegedly gang-raping a 16-year-old. Four suspects were arrested in February for allegedly gang-rape of a 13-year-old. And another three were arrested in relation to the rape of a 10-year-old girl during a burglary. Five other men were arrested in December for the alleged gang-rape of a 17-year-old. In Israel's most infamous case in recent years, 11 suspects were arrested in September in relation to the alleged gang-rape of a 16-year-old at the Red Sea Hotel in Elat. Nearly all the cases, those arrested and indicted were in their teens and early 20s. The offenders are young. And I think that this is what you get when you build an entire society on violence. The center of your society is the military. So you have this obsession with the military, this obsession with violence you know, with owning guns and keeping your guns and the relationship between physical violence and sexual violence and, and the power dynamics, like it's, it's, a, it's just a recipe for disaster. I don't think you can create a society like that, which is so centered in its obsession with the military, with weapons, with power, and not have there be this consequence of an increase in sexual violence, whether it be towards the people who you colonize or towards your own people. Folks, if you stayed with us through that whole episode, we super appreciate you. Thank you all so much for listening to another episode of the Palestine Pod. You can find our sources on www.palestinepod.com. Check us out on Instagram at the Palestine Pod. Send us an email at palestinepod at gmail.com and support us on Patreon, please, at patreon.com slash palestinepod. That's been another episode of the Palestine Pod. Have a great day. Microphone check. Microphone check. Just wait a sec. 212. I can hear you. When I come through, what is you going to do? <laughs> all these chords. Yeah, damn. Why you look like a damn radio shack? <laughs> a radio shack? <laughs> That's a 90s reference. Hope our listeners are old enough to understand. Now you've got the camera looking like it's Inception. <laughs> I know you're going to put this at the end. <laughs>